This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Savor. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about food television. Yeah. <laughs> food TV. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I've said on the show before, but I have never been into... Food TV. Um, I had like four stations growing up. Four television stations. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And when I got to college and there was cable, <laughs> I went all in on cartoons. Cartoons like SpongeBob and Comedy Central. Ah, yeah. No- nothing else. That was it. And uh, Jurassic Park on AMC, even though I own the DVD. Oh, there's something really satisfying about it being on it's a like channel. It's like you caught it. Yeah. Yes. I'd be at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> then you could take a break during the commercials. Right. Mm. Oh, I love mm-hmm. that about a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now in the age of streaming, it's like horror all the way and comedy. I'm a very strange I'm on either end of the spectrum. <laughs> and some, well, some of your, some, some comedy is a little bit horrific, uh, and some horror is very comedic. So I feel like, I feel like horror and comedy are two sides of the same coin here. Isn't it basically release? Yeah. Like it's a release of tension. Yeah, there's a whole, there, there are a lot of theories about this that we could go into <laughs> on probably a whole different series. But you know, the interesting thing is, one of the reasons <laughs> I don't like food television, and I haven't seen a lot, so like this is not a sweeping generalization, but the stuff I have seen, because it was too tense. 
Oh, like all the competition shows? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I can't really watch those. I get too worried for them. Like, it's mm-hmm. like watching ice skating. It's too much. Like, that's just, exactly. like, it's really beautiful, but I'm also like, oh, no. Oh. The one with the kids? I'm like, don't be mean to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I have heard Great British Bake Off. One of the reasons people love it is because it's so, like, Yeah, they're, they're pretty sweet to each other right. um, in general. Uh, definitely watch the holiday episodes okay. the, from Christmas. Like, oh, it was so dear. Anyway, um, yeah, I uh, we had we had cable growing up uh, most of the time, and I did watch a lot of Food Network when it came out. I had always watched cooking shows on like PBS, like Julie Child stuff like that. I grew mm-hmm. up with so, um, and yeah, Iron Chef was like a revelation to me when I was a teenager. So, yeah. uh, so all all of that, but I, I still I still would say that that food documentary is one of my largest. Consumption. Oh, really? Of, of television. Yeah. Yeah. Chef's Table is terrific. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. I just recently rewatched, I think it's Making Fun of Chef's Table. No, it's Making Fun of uh, Dream, Geo Dreams of Sushi, the documentary now episode. Oh, <laughs> it's oh. Making Fun of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the reasons we want to talk about <laughs> food television um, is that it's something that a lot of our interviewees on these kind of food field trips. Have brought up like in in New Orleans, yeah, yeah, in Nashville. We'll be talking to a chef, and we'll say, "How did you get into this?" And one of, I mean, you know, usually it's like, "Well, my parents cooked, or there was this farm that I grew up on." But right up there is Food Network. Yeah, and um, sometimes it's it's kind of a combination of both, yeah. and especially I think we've mentioned this in it might have been it was a couple of episodes ago, but. Um, that for Middle America, where there might not have been that many options, restaurant options, uh-huh. when Food Network or whatever food television came into their town, it exposed them to things they had never been exposed to before. And then that kind of led a push to... Yeah, yeah. That cultural literacy makes people curious to try something and, you know, allows allows that kind of genre to grow. Yeah, Exactly. And when we went to um, Boudin Bourbon and Beer, which is this annual charity event hosted by Emerald Lagasse Foundation, I personally was struck by the fact that Emerald Lagasse and the guest chef Guy Fieri, they are celebrities. Yeah, yeah. They had, like, crowds around them at all times, like, people wanting to shake their hand. Yeah. People were cheering. They, like, came out and made speeches, and everybody went wild. And this... I think we said it, it took place in the area outside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So mm-hmm. it was a big Oh, yeah. It was event. a large event. And people were there to see these. These dudes. These dudes <laughs> and the other chefs and try food. But, like, it was yeah, a big draw. It was. We got excited, too. I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose all of this brings us to our question. Food TV. <laughs> What is it? it well, t- sometimes televisions talk about food. Ooh. Now that's a horror movie. If your TV is, like, talking oh, to you. Yeah, no, that's Videodrome. We probably don't want to go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, TV programming, you know, has to be about something. And food is one of the things it's about. That is true. And numbers, there are some numbers to show that people... People are into this. A Harris poll from 2010 found that 8 out of 10 Americans watch cooking shows at least rarely and half watch them occasionally or more. Only 21% reported never watching cooking shows, which blew my mind. Wow. 
Wow, yeah. What? That's a large, that's a, that's, huh. That's a big amount, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, More than half of the viewers also say that they have been inspired to purchase something based on what they saw on a cooking show. Ah. Yeah, like a lot of kitchen gadgets. Sure. Ingredients. Specific ingredients, yeah. Mm -hmm. The rise of the celebrity chef has coincided with a sharp decrease in staying home to cook. It's created this idea that food is entertainment, it's art, it's an experience, and it's best left to the professionals. I'd say, well, yeah, we can get into it. But yeah, yeah, about about 50-50, like... Like some some food programming is like, no, get in the kitchen and cook. It's totally yeah. easy. You can do it. And the other is like, look at this rock star. You will <laughs> never attain their total skill. Yes, yes. I would agree. When I because this is based on a, a survey I found. Um, when I read that, I was like, really? I would have thought kind of the opposite. But yeah, I suppose if you're like, you know what? I don't want to cook with what's that thing? Polenta. Uh, that's something I experienced. <laughs> I guess I'll just go to a restaurant and have them cook the polenta. <laughs> On the flip side, it has elevated the career of chef and increased the number of people pursuing it as a career. At least it's hard to imagine the exposure to the world through food TV hasn't had any impact on the higher number of folks looking to turn cooking to a career. It's kind of hard to directly correlate it. But, it, but yeah, I think it's I think it's there. Yes, Absolutely. So those are the basic of the what. Uh-huh. But what about the history? Ooh. Yeah. There's there's quite a bit of it, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there really is. For as long as the television has existed, there have been cooking shows. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of celebrity chefs goes back a bit further to folks like Alexis Sawyer, Auguste Escoffier, and Marie-Antoine Carême. Um, and they are all deserving of future episodes. Absolutely. And those over-the-top banquets that treated food as entertainment and spectacle, we've talked about those before. Mm -hmm. Before food TV, there was food radio. Oh, yeah. And now I want to do a whole episode on food radio and podcasting. Um, (laughs) Will we get into recursive? Like, (laughs) we'll never escape the loop. Oh, no. That will be our final episode. (laughs) And then we're just living in the studio from then on out. From then on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but, uh, but okay, in brief, um, because I do think it's important for understanding how food TV happened, uh, food radio. So um, technology-wise, radio broadcasting got its legs in the 1920s. Um, the tech had existed since about 1910, but had been mostly used as two-way communication by militaries and was largely shut down to the public during World War I. But after the war, broadcast radio grew really quickly. It, it's an amazing story of how fast technology can spread and develop. Like, you went from people crafting homemade receivers in 1920 to millions of listeners tuning in via store-bought sets by 1923. Wow. Um, which was the same year that the first ads might have started airing. Um, one of the first was from Procter & Gamble for Crisco. Huh. I just... Ran into a Crisco cooking book like yesterday. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them. Oh, yeah. I oh, it. we grew up with a vat in my kitchen when I was a kid. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, early food radio shows were were based in the um, movement of home, home economics, um, like practical cooking and home advice aimed towards women. The programs that stuck with audiences tended to feature like friendly, confidence-inspiring personalities. The first popular food radio show was French. One Dr. Edouard de Pommian, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I probably 
just butchered that, even though Annie just did it for me. Uh, yeah, he began broadcasting his recipes and kitchen stories in 1923 on Radio Paris. Uh, he was a food scientist at the Pasteur Institute. Um, uh, for a taste of his work, you can check out the book Cooking with Palmien. Oh, I got it right that time. Excellent. Doing everything. <laughs> Um, the first uh, big-time food show in the United States was hosted by someone who our friend Alex Williams just texted us a photo of over the weekend, uh, Betty Crocker. Well, it was a painting because she's fictional. So, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> no, my world crumbles around me. <laughs> that actually was the Crisco cooking book he was showing it to me. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, cool. it's really cool. Oh, I believe you. Okay, mm -hmm. all right, future conversation. Um, this show, the Betty Crocker Cooking School on the Air, uh, started in Minnesota in 1924, went national by 1926, and would continue airing all the way through the 1940s. Thirteen actresses across the country portrayed, portrayed Betty Crocker, um, giving tips and answering common questions. Thirteen. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In response to the rationing during World War II, the U.K. Ministry of Food launched a radio show called The Kitchen Front in 1940 with the goal of teaching listeners how to make healthy, tasty meals with what was available to them. Uh, yeah, um, Betty Crocker broadcast a program called Our Nation's Rations during the war over here as well. Um, and these and other shows during this time really reinforced the role of women as homemakers. Um, they were an easy pitch to both government and private broadcasters alike because sponsors loved them. So easy to tie in products. Yeah. But, okay, this just about brings us to television. But first, it brings us to a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, while all of this was going on, uh, the world saw the beginnings of broadcast television in the mid-1930s. Early programming tended to first be broadcasts of live sporting events, um, then studio shows based on radio shows, like actors reading from scripts in front of microphones or hosts interviewing celebrities or cooking demonstrations. Uh, audiences would be small for about 20 years, though. As of 1950, only 9% of American households had a TV set. Wow. The first ever food show on television may have been in the UK via BBC television in June of 1946, uh, starring one Philip Harbin. Um, it was called simply Cookery. To the point. To the point. Um, he had been doing cooking shows on the radio since 1942, but apparently was pitching to get on TV the whole time. <laughs> um, the CBC says that he was obsessed with this new medium and just, like, wanted to be a part of it. Um, he did have a background in restaurant cooking, so it's like, you know. He wasn't just some guy off the street. <laughs> well, I mean, he kind of was. But, okay. <laughs> but at but, least he was a cooking but, guy off the street. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> the first ever broadcast recipe was for lobster voulevant. Oh, fancy. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, Harbin would be a staple on television through the 1960s, uh, towards the end of his life. The early years of food television shows in America were dominated by PBS mm -hmm. and um, by shows that aimed to teach viewers how to cook. The first was a segment that James Beard appeared in. Elsie presents James Beard in I Love to Eat hmm. from August of 1946 to 1947. And you can see our James Beard episode for more on that. It was Elsie presents as in like Elsie the cow. Like what? Like the like like the like the mascot oh. from Borden, like Borden's Elsie. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Anyway. I did not put that together. <laughs> pretty great. Uh, it is worth mentioning again for this episode, James Beard was an actor as well and once said, food is very much theater. Oh, I love that. Um, this was also basically the first broadcast show that focused on cooking and eating as, like, a pleasurable pastime um, rather than from a more purely technical and practical standpoint. Um, and he'd be one of only a handful of hosts to approach the topic that way for, for a long time. Another one, although less well-known these days than James Beard being James Beard, mm -hmm. um, also began in 1947 and lasted a lot longer than Beard's show because Be Beard just never really worked on camera. Um, yeah. He was pretty awkward back in the day. Dione Lucas, uh, who was one of Cordon Bleu Paris's first female graduates, hosted this primetime cooking show for about a decade. Um, and this, uh, it being primetime, was unusual because most food shows aired during the day. 
because it was in the evening, hers was one of the first food shows that many Americans ever saw. And um, her cooking was, was ambitious and precise and made for being enjoyed. Also, largely French. Mm-hmm. Um, Julia Child would later call her the mother of French cooking in America. Oh. Yeah. Also in 1947, the world got what may have been its first commercial network television series, like not on PBS, PBS. right? Yeah, Um, a series on a privately owned TV network instead of a public one. Um, And it was a cooking show, uh, heavily sponsored by a brand. (laughs) It was called In the Kelvinator Kitchen. Oh, my goodness. And its host was this former former opera singer and talk show host, um, Alma Kitchell. And she would demonstrate Kelvinator appliances and how they could help the average housewife save time in the kitchen. I oh, I know it's not true, but I wish she was like singing an opera about oh, it the whole time. I don't think she was. No, no. that would have been way better. Mm. If we have a time machine, this is the first stop. <laughs> to the Kelvinator kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a lot of American cooking shows through the 1950s were along these lines, like just really reinforcing the post-war American dream of convenience and conformity. Uh, and post-war gender stereotypes, like most hosts were women who were packaged as being homemakers, even though they weren't, they were working. Um, and most male hosts tended to be restaurateurs or chefs. Some contained like scripted sketches with other actors interacting with the host, portraying a family, and others would contain segments on like housekeeping and fashion, and toward the end of the decade, like travel and politics too, which I find interesting. Yeah, that yeah. is interesting. Many of these shows were only regionally broadcast in the area in which they were filmed. Shows at the time tended to be taped live, like beginning to end on a single camera, and broadcast more or less exactly as they were taped. Like, Also, no one really thought to preserve those tapes after they were aired, so we don't have footage of a lot of these early programs. Toward the end of the 1950s, um, the networks seemed to decide that cooking and home economics shows weren't particularly worthwhile. Um, Certainly, their formula for them this formula was not working out very well. Right. Then we get Julia Child. Uh, She made her television debut in 1963 on PBS with The French Chef. It was a regional PBS. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see our Julia Child episode for more on that. Briefly, um, Julia offered progressive American audiences like the perfect thing at the perfect time, like just as social mores were changing to encourage people and perhaps particularly women to um, to find more genuine pleasure in their lives instead of trying to just like wring joy out of duty. Um, and just as the, the shine of all of these convenience foods was starting to wear off and people were beginning to be more concerned about health and the environment, um, and just as the uh, aspirational Kennedys were moving into the White House with their fancy French chef, right. uh, All of this was happening, and then Julia Child comes along and starts showing people how to attain this aspirational food with with whimsy and humor and this sort of, like, friendly practicality. Mm -hmm. Also, um, the combination of a booming post-war middle class and rapidly developing technology meant that most families could afford a TV set. By 1960, 90% of homes had at least one. Wow, that's a big change. I know. Oh, um, yeah, and just poised on the brink of all of that, child really did help change the way that Americans thought about food, like how and what they cooked, and also how they thought about professional cooks. Um, she helped uplift the the profession of chef in the public eye. 
we get Joyce Chen of Joyce Loves to Cook. Um, she started her show on PBS in 1966. Joyce Chen and Julia Child shared the same set. Oh, yeah? Julia Child was like a foot taller than her, so she had to <laughs> Chen had to wear high heels. Oh, my goodness. When she was taping, um, just in order to reach the countertops. But, yeah, uh, she presented some of the uh, first Chinese cuisine on American television. In 1969, we get Graham Kerr's The Galloping Gourmet on network television. And this was maybe the first food show to focus on entertainment over teaching. Like, Kerr considered himself a comedian first. Um, He's very English. I think that, like, Austin Powers and maybe the Weasley twins have something to owe him (laughs) for their presentational (laughs) style. Interesting. <laughs> um, the show was filmed in Canada, but uh, syndicated internationally. And um, it actually wasn't his first TV food show. He had gotten a start way back in 1959 on a show broadcast in New Zealand where he was living at the time, working as a food advisor for the Air Force. Um, the, the first thing he ever cooked on air was an omelet. I appreciate that. I have a real difficulty with omelets, I got to say. Right? No, I, I don't. It seems like such a simple thing. It does. Mm-hmm. It was like... Yeah, there's all sorts of gestures. We're doing kind of arm movements. Yeah, it's probably coming through really well. (laughs) I think it is. On audio. Mm -hmm. Um, And omelet was the first thing that Julia Child would ever cook on air, too. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Huh. And uh, Care's show was the first cooking show that had a studio audience. um, And with, like, a camera pointed back at them so that you could cut to reaction shots. Um, the, The show also featured segments of him traveling to find interesting recipes. And he talked about wine pairings. And those seem, like, really prosaic these days, but, it, like, no one had seen that before. It was right. interesting and new and fresh. Um, his 1970s audiences were, you know, armed with this, like, greater confidence in the kitchen, thanks to Julia Child, and were eager to bring that kind of, like, metropolitan urbanity into their homes. Oh. Like, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, ev- ev- everyone just wanted a fondue pot. Ugh. You just you just went to a place. <laughs> I did. Are you okay? Is it an okay place? Are you all right? It's a it's a funny place. <laughs> we my mom always wanted to do fondue on New Year's and it always went wrong. <laughs> we tried it like every year. She oh, wanted to no. like revive it this year and I was like, like mom, no, no. <laughs> please. <laughs> let it let it have let died it die. in the past. <laughs> I should find that fondue pot and make sure it disappears. <laughs> I've never done the the oil thing successfully. I I, I don't want to try that. No. I, the cheese thing is fine. Right, yeah. It's, I mean, it's just, New Year's is not the time to be doing it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I don't want to go into it any further. <laughs> all right, future episode, future painful episode on yes. fondue. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, uh, speaking of segments that were new and fresh at the time, in 1970, the folks working on Eyewitness News for ABC in New York City started doing a segment called Eyewitness Gourmet. Um, They would go to a local restaurant and have the restaurant kitchen prepare a signature dish on camera. Yeah, that's another thing that seems so like... So like, yeah, duh, that's of course, of course you do that thing. Like we've done that thing. (laughs) We have done that thing, yeah. Um, through, Through the 70s and into the 80s, though, the faces and dishes featured on television got more multicultural. Um, and there was more of a focus on, like, healthy cooking alongside all of that butter and red meat of the previous decade. 
1975, What's Cooking, hosted by Ladiva Davis on PBS, for example. Uh, yeah, this would become the first nationally syndicated cooking show hosted by an African-American woman. Um, the show's focus was on nutrition and saving money like a recession was on, but uh, right up there with child and care, Davis was just this sparkling personality on air. And she also got to share some um, Southern family recipes. Ooh. We get Yan Can Cook, hosted by Martin Yan, premiered in 1978. Rick Bayless's Cooking Mexican debuted that year as well on PBS. In 1982, Justin Wilson seeded the uh, Cajun cuisine trend that we've been talking about exhaustively in our New Orleans episodes um, with his national show, Louisiana Cookin'. Um, He had been on local stations for a full decade by that point. And uh, if you remember vaguely from your childhood, either someone you're not sure who or perhaps uh, like SNL doing a really bad Cajun accent and all like, I guarantee, like that kind of thing. That's him. Oh, really? Yeah, that was okay. his. That was part of his whole like really playing it up Cajun shtick. Okay. Mm-hmm. In 1983, Jeff Smith's show The Frugal Gourmet debuted on PBS. Um, this was a show that celebrated local cuisine from all over the world. The the history and culture and curiosity of food, like what we can learn about the world and its people from food. The term foodie was first coined in the 1980s. Oh, uh, yeah. The economic boom, the American economic boom of the 1980s brought a few things here. Um, We started getting this expanse in, like, expensive, showy Hulk cuisine, Um, like this ever-expanding interest in those gourmet foods for the home cook, and a greater focus on the restaurant world and its celebrity chefs like Wolfgang Puck and Jacques Pepin. Alongside that, there was um, the expansion of cable TV, the introduction of VCRs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, instead of uh, being limited to, like, just a few cooking shows on a handful of networks, mostly PBS, which was, like, still really the only network making food shows work at the time, toward the end of the 80s, um, viewers could choose from many food shows with niche interests, including a return to homemaking. In 1986, Martha Stewart made her TV debut with Holiday Entertaining with Martha Stewart. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Also of note, um, many networks by this point were running programming 24 hours a day, which was a big shift from prior eras. I know it sounds silly now. Like, why <laughs> wouldn't TV be on 24 hours a day? But most stations would shut down at a certain right. point in the evening and come back in the morning. Yeah, those, like, rainbow bars. Yeah. I had a station that did that, one of my four stations. Oh. <laughs> Uh-huh. Which wasn't PBS, wasn't one of them. Um, this about brings us to the early 90s when a group of media-savvy folks, including Trigvi Myron, which I don't want to give something, but I know somebody with this exact same name, and now I'm kind of, like, suspicious what? if he has a double life. Huh. Come on to you, Trigvi. I, I see you. <laughs> we know <laughs> what you did. Um, Reese Schoenfeld, Jack Clifford, and Joe Langan got the idea for a New York City-based cable channel that revolved entirely around food. They didn't have much money, nor much interest in food. But they did some market research and noted how popular food magazines and cookbooks were and saw the success of PBS's food shows and how low-cost they could be to produce and uh, how many marketing tie-ins there was potential for. Uh Uh-huh, and they quickly realized there was a wealth of eager and affordable talent. When word got out that there was this call for talent around food content— the three men, three of these men, were inundated with tapes, like VCR tapes. 
Oh, yeah. Tapes. That was the time. Yeah, it was the time. Like 180 tapes. What? what? Yeah. They got out the old VCR and spent three days watching these tapes, taking notes, post-it notes mapped across the wall like a food conspiracy. (laughs) When Trickfee called up Reese with the proposal for a food network, Reese claims he laughed out loud at the idea, (laughs) and his wife agreed, calling it the stupidest idea the stupidest idea she'd ever heard. Wow. Yeah. She's Ooh. like, who watches cooking on TV? That's ridiculous. That's silly. <laughs> 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 Up until almost launch day, the working title for this, this network um, was The Cooking Channel. But the name, that name was unavailable. And the, another unavailable name was The Food Network. So they went with The Television Food Network. Mm. And reading accounts from some of the the first people that worked there, uh, making pilots and shows, it was chaos. It was new. Uh, yeah, they they tried lots of things. Um, from a show by Robin Leach of uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, uh, featuring celebrity guests, to a news style program covering the food world, hosted by Donna Hanover. You know, like Rudy Giuliani's wife. Oh, I'd yeah. forgotten about that that nugget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brain's like, like unearthing something. <laughs> mm-hmm. There were some stirrings of future successes, though. Alton Brown and Curtis Aikens first appeared on the Food Network in 1993, and Bobby Flay made his first appearance in 1995. But no one knew what they were doing, including one Emeril Lagasse, who was tapped twice to make a pilot. Both were terrible. That's not me saying it. No, right that's everybody. Places. That's literally everyone <laughs> yes. saying that. Um, and, and this was despite his excellent showing on uh, Julia Child's show, Cooking with Master Chefs. Like, together they had had, like, a really natural thing, but they were trying to do a scripted thing with him. It wasn't working out. Right. But the higher-ups really wanted to work with Emeril, and they thought, let's just do a personality show about him. Emeril, who is a classically trained chef, um, cooking things like meatloaf. Essence of Emeril was hugely popular. It put Food Network on the map and led to the coining of a three-letter word, BAM. Is that how he does it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was actually a really good emerald. Awesome. Well, I can (laughs) add it to my impressions list, which I did make. (laughs) You have an impressions list around the office. I haven't shared it with anybody, but I will. I will. According to Emerald, Bam was born out of exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) The staff would shoot an entire season in eight days, five episodes a day, Bam was sort of like a wake-up call. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that that was going really well. But Emeril and the network really hit big when they put him in front of a studio audience for Emeril Live. Uh, like it was the whole thing. Like there was a house band. He did an opening monologue. It was like a night show, but with a stovetop instead of a host desk. Mm-hmm. Their CEO at the time, one Erica Gruen, had the idea that the network should be Again, like more about showing viewers a fun time than particularly teaching them anything. She, by the way, was only the second female CEO in the TV industry, TV network industry. Wow. Yeah. Um, And all of this was happening around like 95 to 97. On sort of the flip side of Emerald Live, one Sarah Moulton hosted a show called Cooking Live where she took call-in questions and would talk the audience through the full preparation of a recipe. Like none of this already having your garlic pre-minced in a little uh-huh. ramekin kind of thing. Like full thing. You could cook along with her 
in real time if you so chose. Ah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting. Like, you've got this rock star thing happening, but there was still room for that, like, PBS-ish, like, person-to-person concept of of cooking and teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is interesting. And other networks were uh, also dabbling in cooking. Um, take TBS's incredibly bizarre Dinner in a Movie series, which debuted in 1995. If y'all don't remember this, it was surreal. They would have these hosts make something for dinner, intercut in between, like, scenes, like, like, the full movie. Like, it would be, like, Fast Times from Ridgemont High. Or Anaconda. I remember Anaconda. Yeah. (laughs) And then every, like, 20 minutes, they would stop and be like, yeah, we're dicing onion. And it was so strange. It was really bizarre. It was full of puns. All of the dishes had some kind of punny thing to do with the movie anyway. Yeah. Oh, TBS at the time. <laughs> One of my four stations, so I did get that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> BBC got in on all of this as well with two fat ladies in 1996 and Jamie Oliver's The Naked Chef, which debuted in 1997. Jamie Oliver has shared um, a story of learning that he had a responsibility after he would make a recipe and those ingredients would sell out across the country. Oh, wow. Yeah, especially if they were like kind of rare. Relatively rare, yeah. Um, maybe people didn't use them that much so they weren't in stores. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And PBS wasn't out of the game either. Oh, no. With Paul Prudhomme's show Fork in the Road first airing in 1995, Gordon Ramsay got his start around 1999. And side note, I sat next to him at a movie once. Gordon Ramsay? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Was he enjoying himself? I think so. I was really cold. <laughs> <laughs> It, like, poured down rain and hail. It's a whole story. Oh, goodness. Um, I'm pretty sure that was him, but I could be wrong. Um, And I also stayed at the Hotel The London, uh, which, like, uh, even the breakfast menu is by him. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and you can make free phone calls to London. Oh. Where where is it located? (laughs) Uh, Los Angeles, and there is one in London. (laughs) I think there's one in New York, too. But I was like, who could I call? And I couldn't think of anybody. I do have a friend in London, but I don't know her number. Oh, Yes. Um, another side note, I am in an episode of Restaurant Impossible. Oh. Or I've never seen it, so I might not have made, like, the cut. Um, because I thought we were filming the after, but we were filming the before. Oh, so, when everything is supposed to be terrible? Exactly. So I thought we were in the after part, so I was like, this is all great. I love it. I love everything. And clearly... Robert Irvine was not happy with me. And then he yelled at me because I I wouldn't stop drinking the water after he announced he'd found a dead cockroach in the ice machine. But I was like, I'd already been drinking the water. Like, the damage is done. The damage is done. There's not, like, more cockroach. I mean, it's really just, yeah. Come on. And I also almost died, slight exaggeration, of choking on a piece of broccoli. And the cameraman just, like, went down with me. I was like, ugh. And he's following me. <laughs> the camera. Like, I'm gonna die on this episode of Restaurant Impossible. But it would have been so dramatic. <laughs> it would have been. It would have. Been. Wow. I wonder if he thought you were acting. Maybe because that is one thing. Um, a lot of people there were actors. I don't know if they specifically looked for actors. I was just there for a free meal. It was college, and oh, I heard yeah. there was like a free food thing happening. Yeah, I was like, like, oh, there's in, TV. Done. <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, <laughs> But uh, it, yes, uh, around this time, the the late '90s, early 2000s, there were so many f- different shows. Like one for every type of cook, every type of eater, and I think more aimed towards the eater than the cook. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Um, in 2000, the Food Network began syndicating a dubbed version of the Japanese cooking competition show Iron Chef, which originally aired in uh, 1993 through 99 over in Japan. It was a wild hit. Like, within a year, its viewership had outpaced Emerald Lives. Wow. We, as it turns out, I think that we have Iron Chef to thank and or blame for cooking competition shows in America, and thus probably the world. Uh, We'll have to do a whole episode there. Um, Within a decade, though, Food Network alone had 16 cooking competition shows. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Some of the Food Network chefs did become these celebrities. They they opened hotels um, and restaurants bearing their name. Not, but people knew. Mm-hmm. People knew in Las Vegas, New York, all over. It was the era of the the, the burgeoning era of reality television. Um, but before the internet had brought us streaming video, um, traditional television was still huge, and its stars even huger. Um, in uh, 2001, Rachel Ray's 30-Minute Meals debuted her first show. The same year, Emeril got a sitcom. He had a sitcom? He had a sitcom. <laughs> it really did poorly. It did so poorly. Um, I'm having a hard time imagining anything else than it doing poorly. <laughs> and that's no uh, slight on you, Emeril. No, but. no. Dude, Emeril, if, you listen, if you're listening, uh, nothing but respect. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do well on a sitcom. I wouldn't purposefully do well. (laughs) It would have to be some kind of crazy accident. (laughs) See, I want to see a sitcom about that. (laughs) An accidental sitcom? Uh, A sitcom about you accidentally being really good on a sitcom. I mean, I'm available. I I, I got this whole podcasting thing, but outside of that, you know, I'm open to ideas. Uh, Anthony Bourdain's first show, A Cook's Tour, came out in 2002 following the success of his book, Kitchen Confidential. Um, the show wasn't a huge success. I think that there was, I think that he butted heads with the network execs at Food Network. Um, but it did help push off the uh, food travel segment of the food TV industry. Mm-hmm. In 2004, Food Network was rated number one among all TV networks, like broadcast cable and satellite uh, quote, in terms of having well-liked hosts and personalities. Hmm, wow. In 2005, uh, when they launched the competition show The Next Food Network Star, they received 10,000 audition tapes. 10,000? Yes. I mean, I was prepared to think that 180 was a large number. Yeah, And I was it was. Too. Yeah. But I'm like, oh. 10,000. Yeah. Oof. Guy Fieri won. He won? The Next Food Network star, the second season in 2006. And, uh, yeah, that is how we got Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives in 2007. Oh, I didn't know that. Me? I think I did somewhere in a very sure. dim corner of my brain. <laughs> yeah. Got dislodged. Yeah. Um, that same year, 2007, Rachel Ray joined the ranks of uh, Madame Tussauds in New York City. She's That's success right there. She's a wax statue now. You can go. I Actually, I don't know if you can still go see it. Yeah, I know. I know that they rotate them. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure she was there when I went in 2005. <laughs> Might have been another dim corner situation. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh no! In 2005, no, she would not have been there. No, that was in the past. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, the success of the Food Network spawned so many more cooking shows, and even an entire genre of baking and desserts shows, like separately. The Great British Bake Off, which most of my friends are in love with, mm-hmm. uh, they 
been campaigning for us to do an episode on it, so okay. forthcoming. Okay. Um, and the introduction of streaming services has only increased accessibility and content. Of course. So much. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. And yeah, just, I mean, going down to, to you know, your, your average human person putting a show up on YouTube. Yeah. Getting so many hits. There's, there's so many amazing YouTubers doing food content. Right. And it makes me so happy to see just these very strange niche Niches. things. Yeah, I like yeah. the um, nerd baked goods one because, of course, I do. Oh, I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think I've seen that one. I I really enjoy you suck at cooking, um, <laughs> yeah. but for I mean I don't know that falls into that comedy horror kind of vortex. Yeah, the comedy <laughs> horror food intersection. <laughs> I got you. I got you. We have a little bit more for you, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So we do have some issues we wanted to touch on briefly just because it did come up a lot during yeah, this research. Yeah, during research, right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that all of this could be, should should be um, 
kind of full episodes that we have time to to explore right. more about these cultural points. But yes, um, so one of the comparisons I saw over and over again researching this episode, and I heard while I was at the Southern Foodways Alliance conference in um, Birmingham, the symposium uh, was between food TV and porn, and I wasn't even going to bring it up. But it kept coming up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, There was a whole—one of my main resources for this episode is a book that I'm pointing at, as though that makes a difference to (laughs) y'all, called Watching What We Eat, The Evolution of Television Cooking Shows by one uh, Kathleen Collins. And, yeah, she has, like, a couple of chapters about um, the comparisons between food television and pornography. Yeah, and, I mean, we even say— Food porn. Right, sure. Right. Um, And one of the interesting slash sad things about it is, uh, and again, we should do a whole episode on this, um, but there there was a couple of comparisons of people who have eating disorders and will watch food television shows. Like instead of eating. Instead of eating. Yeah. Um, And kind of like imagine what it would be like. Um, And there's a comparison to porn there as well. Uh Um, There's also the repositioning of chef and cook into this sexy rock star thing um, that glamorizes the hard life of a chef. And that was something that came up at this um, symposium I went to about how that kind of leads to some mental health issues or substance abuse issues, or it exacerbates them. It, it contributes to it, absolutely. I think that there's already a uh, that kind of like we're all rock stars, we are we are leading the party kind of um, kind of emotion that happens in kitchens. And mm-hmm. then when you get someone up there like your Tony Bourdain's of the world, um, then it, it's it's like oh yeah, like that. Well, that I I could be driving a Rolls. Like why? Like you know? Right. Exactly. Um, and then. There is the industry as a whole and the world, but since we're a food show, this industry has faced backlash for its lack of diversity and representation. The expectation that women on cooking shows should wear sexy clothes. There's even a term for it. There's an old sminty stuff. I've never told you episode about it, but it's basically like the certain uh, neckline that women wore. And of course... Sexual harassment scandals, like with Mario Batali, which as of today, as of we're recording this, he's given up all of his stakes yeah. in his restaurants yeah, due to the sexual harassment um, scandal around him. So there are these big issues that um, have arisen from this kind of celebrity chef food thing. It's not... Of course, it's in all kinds of industries. It's not just this one. Oh, sure, yeah, but it, it, it's it's really. I, I think that it this and and this is where I sound like a Vulcan. Um, uh, I think it's very interesting um, that this intersection between the entertainment industry and the food industry, where individually these issues existed in different ways, and and the ways that they're combining into like the worst Voltron ever mm-hmm. in some of the food entertainment industry. Um, I mean, and I suppose, I mean, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like a problem particular to what we're, you know, to, to, to the food entertainment industry. But I, I just think that it's, it's a very fascinating phenomenon that absolutely deserves uh, a lot more, uh, thought and research. Right. Um, and one more thing from me before we close out, um, the, that symposium I went to, um, it, 
touched on a lot of these. It was really great, but it was interesting to hear people from within the industry addressing these problems, like wrestling with them. What do we do? What services can we provide to people in our industry to protect them and to make sure that they're healthy and whole? Um, and it was it was really inspiring to hear the, the solutions people were batting around or things that people have already done and tried. Um, so definitely worth coming back to yeah. in the future. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, that's our whirlwind. Yeah, yeah. Just just ending the episode on <laughs> this. <laughs> on, there's hope. There's No, there stuff. is. There is. People are certainly aware that these are problems, um, especially, again, to invoke the name of Anthony Bourdain, um, right. you know, especially in the wake of his suicide. I think that there's been a lot of really important um, and moving towards really good work in helping people get the help that they need. Yeah, and just conversation around it. I was kind of surprised that um, the symposium was two days, and I would say almost the entirety of the second day was devoted to things like this. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it was really great. Really great. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh Uh-huh. And to listener mail. mail. It's like, bam. Like, bam. (laughs) you got to do the hand motion. (laughs) I hope that you captured it on mic, but, you know. (laughs) All right. Chad wrote, I recently listened to the episode on energy drinks, and it brought back a hilarious science-related memory. Back when I was in ninth grade and during the annual science fair project week, my best friend decided to make his project revolve around the consumption of energy drinks. More specifically, he had three of us athletes drink (laughs) copious amounts of caffeine and then would test our blood pressure at random intervals throughout the rest of the afternoon. I specifically remember I had the highest dosage of energy drinks, which consisted of drinking five cans of Red Bull in one sitting. Oh, my goodness. This was much higher than the lowest dose of three cans of Mountain Dew. I would say so. (laughs) Um, And it is safe to say that I was a little jittery for the rest of the afternoon. I even got kicked out of my student government class for being disruptive. To top things off, that week at the science fair, my friend got an earful regarding his project from the visiting medical group commander from the local Air Force base, who happened to be one of the judges. Although my <laughs> friend didn't place very well in the competition, and I still probably have, haven't come down from that high all these years later, it still gives me a chuckle when I think about this project. <laughs> I'm happy you're alive, sir. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Five Red Bulls out. Oh, I drink responsibly. Jeez. Yes. What a, that's such a funny, I would have done something similar in high school. Yeah, that oh. sounds very high school. I, yeah. I just got caffeine jitters from reading that, though, so. I know. <laughs> it's like, let's just drink a lot of energy drinks and see what happens. That's our oh. science project. <laughs> oh, um, Naomi wrote, I was listening to your The Door-Stopping Story of Fruitcake episode and loved every second. Oh, thank you. My mom's family is English and Scottish, so she makes Christmas cake every year. It's become a family tradition for everyone to stir the cake at least once for that secret ingredient of love. She's thinking about not making one this year because no one eats them anymore, which is a bit upsetting and makes me feel a little bad for not liking them, but fruitcake is really not my thing. But... Not to be outdone, her older brother makes a Christmas pudding every year as well, and of course we set it on fire. It's always the best part of the day, but doesn't always go off without a hitch. One time my cousin was pouring the brandy over the pudding, and my uncle was a little too enthusiastic about lighting the pudding up, and she didn't get her arm away quick enough. 
Yeah, the flame managed to jump up to the mug that had the brandy in it and then up her arm. Thank goodness we're in Australia, so it was about 35 degrees and she wasn't wearing sleeves or her shirt might have caught fire. But that didn't happen. She was just a little traumatized and she now stands far, far away from the pudding when her dad gets out the lighter. Entirely fair. Entirely fair. Yeah, yeah, no, that's legit. That's (laughs) that's a good safety tip. You know, I think I'm going to stand back from now on. I love this so, so much. Why do we love lighting things on fire? It's it's great. It is. I mean, I'm part of it, too. I know. Oh, I know. We won't talk about that. (laughs) Well... If you would like to email us, you can. Our email is hello at saberpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Saberpod. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.